today we're going to be taking a look at sort of the second to last message that we'll be looking at in the book of Galatians. Hopefully this has been a blessing to you guys. I know for me it's been rich. I've been encouraged by it. Hopefully you guys have been encouraged by it as well. What I want to do today is I want to basically look at one verse, and I'll tell you why we'll just look at one verse in particular, uh, but what we'll do right now is I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get to work at it, and I'll tell you why we're just going to be looking at one verse today, and uh, hopefully it'll all make sense to you guys, and uh, hopefully it'll be an encouragement and a blessing to you. So let's read this, and then we'll pray. Chapter 6, we'll take a look at verse 10, and then uh, we'll get to work. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. God, we ask you right now that you would just help us, enable us to understand your word. God, that you would just speak your word, your truth into our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear, uh, give us eyes to see. God, help me to be able to clearly convey and communicate it. And God, I even ask you right now that anything at all that I would say that is just not in sync or in line with your heart, with your spirit, with your word, God, that you would let it fall by the wayside. And I even just ask you, God, even up front, that you would forgive me uh, for my sins. God, there are many, uh, my inabilities, which are many, but God, I pray that you would just move powerfully and mightily so that your word would uh, work its proper work in our lives that would bring about the proper transformation inside of us that you desire. So we just commit this time in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I want to look at specifically today a main subject. And the main subject that we'll be taking a look at here today is really the idea of good works or good deeds. Um, Paul has been talking about all the way up into this point throughout the entire book of Galatians, laying this foundation, laying this groundwork that the way by which you and I are made right with God is not by works. It's not by what we do for God. It's not by how we act for God that gets God's attention or creates God's love for us or gets God to notice us in, a, in an affectionate way. It's not what we do in and of ourselves, that somehow earns God's favor. It's very important to understand this. And the reality is that this, this is the case, this is one of the main arguments throughout the entire book of Galatians. It's really the main point by which Paul is driving home regularly, that we are saved exclusively by grace. What I mean by that is that God sets us free. He transforms us. He changes us. Not by what we do for God, not by the good acts that we do for God, not by being circumcised, not by keeping the law, not by going to church, not by having a Bible that we read every single day, uh, not by praying every day, not by evangelizing every day. These are not things that we do somehow to get God to like us. This is really important to, to point this out because Paul is battling with a group of believers that somehow had fallen prey into a false teaching that cause them to think that God will accept them or they will become favorable before God on the basis of keeping the law of Moses. And Paul's whole pushback, Paul's whole argument against him is that that's not how God accepts you. If you begin to think that you're accepted by God on the basis of that, then what will end up happening, the way this will begin to work itself out in your life, is then you will then only begin to accept other people in your lives, who also follow in the same thinking. In other words, if you think God accepts you on the basis of the law, then you will only accept other people on the basis of, are they keeping the law? In other words, you become very exclusive. We see this all the time. That if people tend to become very exclusive, we see this a lot in religion, we see this a lot even in Christian religion, Groups that become very exclusive, groups that sort of form around a particular person or a tribe or distinctives or concepts or ideologies or causes, 
and they tend to exclude anybody else who does not sync up or identify with, with every one of those, what you actually are identifying, what you're noticing, what you're seeing, what you're observing, are a group of people that actually feel, even though they may, ne- they may never articulate, articulate it like this, they actually think in their minds that the way that God accepts them is on the basis of Jesus plus their good theological practices, or Jesus plus their evangelism, or Jesus plus their particular method of worship, or Jesus plus how much they pray, or Jesus plus their eschatological viewpoints. They'll never articulate it that way. No one will ever say that because no one ever wants to admit that because they know that sounds heretical because it is. But here's what Paul's saying, is that you guys that are in Galatia are only accepting people and receiving people who are being circumcised and who are keeping the law of Moses. Everybody else that's not keeping the law of Moses, everybody else that's not being circumcised, you bite and devour them. That's what he says in chapter 5. Which really is not just simply an issue with rules. Here's the whole point. If that's you, if you have this mentality in your mind where you're like, I'm very judgmental and very critical of other people that aren't just like me, don't have my same theological bents just like me, if that's the way that you look at other people is like that, it's not just simply that you have a theological nuance. It's that actually you have an inability or you have a problem with accepting that you are justified by grace alone. It's a, it's a theological issue with regard to God's grace. For some reason, the real problem is that you think that God's grace saves you plus something else. In other words, you've given it too much importance in your life, too much significance, no matter what it is, circumcision, eschatological viewpoints, certain theological bents. If you give it too much significance, then that will be the means by which you will only agree to accept other people. But if you were saved by grace, then that means that you realize you get a chance to accept everybody in the same way that you've been accepted by God. If you know that you are saved by grace, then guess how you'll receive other people by grace. If you know that God has accepted you, even though that you at one time were a heretic, guess what? You can actually sit down with heretics and accept them. That doesn't mean that you have to accept their theological falsities. It means that you love them regardless of their theological falsities. And you love them enough to bring them to Jesus to see those theological falsities straightened out. Or that means that if you recognize that God has accepted you as a horrible sinner, and he loves you as a horrible sinner, that means that you can actually sit down with horrible sinners and love them. But because you love them, you don't want to see them stay in a place of horrible sin because you know what sin does? Sin binds people. It doesn't keep a person free. Sin does not give people wings to live. It doesn't bring them to life. Sin binds. Sin restricts. Sin restrains. Sin oppresses. Sin ultimately leads to death. But if you recognize that you've been saved by grace, then you have the same, that same grace makes its way out in your life and you are able to accept other people on the basis of grace. But if you think you're saved by grace plus something else, then you'll begin to see yourself only accepting people on the basis of whatever that lens is. Whatever it is. I mean, it's different for everybody. So what Paul's trying to say is that, no, no, we are saved by grace alone. We're saved by grace alone. Not by grace plus adherence to the law of Moses. Not by grace 
plus circumcision, but by grace alone, God saves us. And we've been saying this all along throughout the entire sermon series. Now, the problem with that is, is actually there's no problem with that, but the, the reality is that we don't talk much about works. And the tendency, I think, that can oftentimes uh, be misconstrued from this is that, well, our work's not important to God. Does God not care how we live morally? Does God not care how we act? Does God care whether or not, you know, people are living in sin or a guy's shacking up with his girlfriend? Does God care about that? And the answer to that is, yes, he does. He really does. God does care about our moral standard, our moral conduct, but it's not our moral conduct that saves us. It's not how we live that transforms us, or it's not how we live that gets God to love us. But the point of the matter is, once a person is saved, once they're transformed and changed, they, when God gives them a new heart, they will begin to live out from that new heart, and they will begin to experience a change in their life. Martin Luther would put it this way. He says, though we are justified by faith alone, the faith that justifies is never alone. His point is that we recognize that by grace, by faith alone, God saves us, God changes us. But if we truly are changed, if we truly are saved, then we will begin to demonstrate actual works of service. This is basically another way in which Paul would say earlier, there will be fruit, there will be evidence of saving faith at work in your life. So if you truly claim to be a Christian and you truly are a Christian, there should be evidences that are preeminent, predominant within your life that people can look at and say, they're a Christian. There's no doubt about that. Look at the way they live. Look at how they act. Now the danger of it is, because I've been pushing back an awful lot throughout this entire series upon religion and religious activities. And the reason why is because religion to me is like a plastic tree. All right? You can look at a regular tree and think, oh, that looks really nice. Or you can look at a plastic tree and think, that looks really nice. You might even have plastic apples on a plastic tree and be deceived and think, that's definitely a nice apple tree. It's not a nice apple tree. It's plastic, and it has wax fruit on it. You don't want to eat wax fruit. It's not that good for you. It does not have the same type of nutrients. But the point of the matter is, is that's what religion does. Religious mentality oftentimes causes people to think that just because I look a certain way or act according to a certain moralistic standard or branding or idea, that somehow maybe I'm a Christian. And what Paul's going to say is, no, it doesn't work that way. In fact, this is the whole storyline between Jesus when he's talking about the prodigal son. That most of us oftentimes focus on the prodigal son who ran away from home and he sinned, he sold his father's birthright and you know, all these good things that he was given and got rid of it all, take, took all of his inheritance, got rid of it all. And we focus on that, we're like, oh, the story of the prodigal son is about God the father going out after the nasty, you know, meth addict son who's just a loser, plays video games all day long, doesn't, just wants to live at home. And when he does want to move away from home, he just takes advantage of everything, he's a bad kid. And God loves him. God wants to redeem him. But the story actually has a phase two, and the phase two is that there's an older brother who lives at home. He's always done everything right. He's always acted right. He's always been righteous. In other words, he's the church-going older brother who has a Bible, reads his Bible every day, does everything accordingly by the book. But he, the older son, is just as far from the father as the younger son who ran away into sin just as far from God. He's just as wicked as the younger brother. The only difference is, is that he's good, and the younger brother's really bad. 
In other words, one is trusting in, or sees how bad he is, and therefore his badness is what leads him away. But do you know that your goodness can also be the number one factor that leads you away from God? Because you're trusting in your goodness. That's Paul's whole point throughout the whole book of Galatians. It's not just falling back into some bad sin that will ensnare you or trap you, but falling into some form of religious goodness is equally as bad. It's equally as bad. So here's the question I want to try to drive at. So we know this. We've talked about this. We've spent hours, hours, and hours talking about this to you guys over the past several months. What I want to try to do now is I want to kind of build a little bit of a biblical foundation as to what do good spiritual works look like. Good works actually birthed out of people who follow Jesus look like. So the point that I would make is this, is that we know we're not saved by works, but people who are saved actually do good works. They live in a way in which they emulate or do forth, live forth good works. And the reason why this is such an important thing, the reason why Paul can say this in verse 10, is because if you're a Christian, what's happened is that God's actually given you a new heart. You can look at it this way. You got a massive upgrade. The software has been completely upgraded in your life, right? Whereas once you were running Windows 7, all right? But God loves you enough, he upgraded you to Mac OS 10. all right? That's how much he loves you. He gave you a system that actually works. It's very good. So the point of the matter is, is now things actually work in your life. So the point of the matter that I'm trying to drive home is that just because you do good works as a non-believer does not mean that they're good to God. You can do good works in this world, and they're beneficial on a social scale, on a civic scale. In fact, some of the reformers during the time of the Great Reformation described it like this, as a civic, as a civic goodness, all right? This is, this is a type of goodness that if you go out and you help an old lady cross the street, that's really good. That's very nice. Old ladies need help crossing the street. If you see some guy who needs a little bit of cash to buy a burrito, that's really a good work. It's nice. You're actually helping somebody out on a civic level. You're helping some other people in a social level to, by doing good, kind things. But the important thing to understand is that if you bring that work one day before God and be like, God, accept me. I helped an old lady cross the street and I helped buy a guy a burrito. God will not look at that favorably. God will not look at that and say, I, I accept that. Because at the end of the day, most of the very good works that we do are oftentimes motivated by bad desires. We're not doing good works on the basis of sheer love for people and sheer love for God. We oftentimes as non-believers will do things, or I would say even all the time, on the basis of somehow earning God's affection, earning some favor from God. That even the very motive by which we do good deeds as non-believers are bad. And therefore, before God, this is why the Old Testament in Isaiah, he's going to say, even our good righteousness, our righteousness, the very best act that you can think of, the very best thing that you've ever done on the best day of your life, when you're feeling the best, before God is like a filthy rag, which literally in the Hebrew is a used menstrual cloth. It's an offense to God. Paul, later on. And the New Testament is going to describe his past life of good works in Judaism. All the things that Paul ever did is nothing more than a, than a pile of dung. That's what Paul's whole identification of good works are in the eyes of God. The things that we do that apart from God, apart from faith in God, trust in God, love for God, and love for God's people. That, In other words, the point of the matter is, this, is that yes, our motivations matter. 
What motivates us matters before God. So this is why, at the end of the day, it's absolutely essential if we're going to talk about good works, we cannot talk about good works apart from a new heart. We need new software. We need an upgrade. We need a new motor, a new engine that powers us, that enables us, that strengthens us, that gets us on the pathway. And that's what salvation is. Salvation is a gift from God giving us a new motor, giving us a new engine, giving us a free software upgrade with no cost, no expense to us. It's totally free, but it costs God everything. And out of that new heart, out of that new motivation, out of that new desire, the works that we do are actually situated in Jesus out of faith and trust in God and love for God, love for his people. And these are the works that Paul's going to say. Do good to all men, especially those in a household of faith. So, so that's what I want to talk about is what are good works? How do these work themselves out in the lives of people? So with that being said, I'm going to jump in and kind of lay a groundwork for this very quickly. You're like, I thought you just laid a groundwork. I'm going to say one more thing before we jump in. This is all introduction. It's all free, by the way. Um, the point of the matter is, is this. A lot of times, Christians, you know, we, when we talk about as a Christian, we, we live and our works that we do are done and to be done in a way by which to please God. That's different than works being done to appease God. There's a big difference between pleasing and appeasing God. Christians, we do works before God as a means of pleasing God, meaning we know that God loves us. He loves us. He's shown affection to us, that he's shown kindness to us, and therefore, out of the innermost being of our heart, we want to do things that just bring great honor and great pleasure to God because God loves us. That's radically different than doing things to appease God, meaning we do things in a way whereby if we do them, if we act them out, if we live them out, if we give a certain amount of money, if we demonstrate a certain amount of kindness, if we donate a certain amount of uh, time, that somehow maybe God will be pleased with me, maybe God will kind of take and knock some years of hell off of me, or make life a little bit better for me. Do you know at the end of the day, the Bible's going to describe that type of activity as paganism? There's a lot of Christians, people that would maybe even call themselves Christians, that actually that's the way that they think of God. It's actually a form of paganism. To think that I've got to do something to get God to like me. If I work hard, if I read my Bible enough, if I go to church enough, if I do good things enough, then God will like me. That's this idea of you trying to appease God. And I would go so far as to say that the majority of good works that are done in this world are done with some sort of mentality in the back of the mind that there's a motivation that says, I'm doing this because I, I just don't want God Whatever he is, whatever she is, whatever it may be, I don't want it to be angry at me. So I will somehow work hard to appease God. It's paganism. But Christianity is God saying, I will work the works that are pleasing to me through my son. So why Jesus can say, I do always everything that pleases the Father. Everything I do always pleases God. See, we, we can't really even say that. That's a, that's a term that's exclusive to Jesus. But he says, everything I do pleases my dad. He's always happy with everything that I do. And what happens is that because of what Christianity is, and because of what God has done for us by saving us, God sees us in his son Jesus. And so, therefore, the works that we do 
by faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, are actually seen by God as works that are actually pleasing to God himself. So we work in a way as if to please God, because we love God. That's radically different than working in such a way to appease God. So with that being said, here's a handful of works that I want to try to break down in three different categories. We'll look at each one of these things. So the good works that we're talking about, first and foremost, are good works that have to do with uh, ministry to God. Secondly, ministry to believers. Thirdly, we'll take a look at ministry to the world that has to do with evangelism and mercy. So let's first of all knock out what it looks like to do good works of ministry to God. This actually involves three specific things, perhaps more, but this is kind of what we'll start with and we'll look at it very quickly here. It has to do with worship, it has to do with obedience, and we'll talk about vocation. What I mean is your job. So first of all, worship. Um, take a look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. So the point that Paul is trying to make here is that the worship that we do to God, it's actually acceptable and pleasing to God, all right? Paul's going to actually say elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that we should walk in these things. So Paul's going to tell us, first and foremost, that this new creation, this new work that God has done, this new upgrade, if you would, that God has done in the lives of his people is done in such a way so that it would actually produce and bring about good works. Do you get that? So that your life would be full of good works, rich with good works. It's not optional. In fact, I would go so far and say this, is that good works are the example, they are the evidence, they are the fruit of whether or not you're really a Christian. You say that you're a Christian and you have nothing but bad works coming out of your life. Listen to what Jesus would say about this. Every healthy tree in Matthew chapter 7, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So the point of the matter is, is if you claim to be a Christian, and the only type of evidence or fruit that's coming out of your mouth, out of your life, is complaints, bitterness, angry, and uh, antagonism, you complain about everything, you're frustrated about everything, you stand at arm's length with getting involved in the church, loving people, serving people, helping people, you don't give your money, you don't, you don't show generosity, there's no signs of that whatsoever. Um, one of two things is either one, you're not a Christian, even though you may claim to be a Christian, even though you may claim to be part of the group, a social gathering of Christians, you're not truly really a Christian. There is no sign of true life, in fact, quite the opposite. Or you may be a Christian, is in dire need of having branches in your life pruned. There are areas in your life that are not in line or in sync with God, but what will end up happening in your life at some point is God will prune you, and there will be a season or a series of incredible repentance in your life where you will confess sin, you will humble your heart, you will recognize uh, and submit yourself to whatever types of things that are going on in your life, and you will recognize God's authority over your life, and you will recognize that God loves you so much that he wants you to be fruitful because God wants your life to be a blessing to other people. Why? Because God's a blessing to other people. And he loves you enough to continue to conform you into his image. So either you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian at all, or you are a Christian that needs to continue to live out your life in humble repentance to other people and before God, recognizing areas of um, Broken growth, recognizing areas of where there's just unfruitfulness or hindered growth, confess those areas, and then continue to move on. This is why, by the way, we are in desperate need of biblical community. 
You can't do this on your own. You, you know that? Some of you guys have tried that. I've talked to some of you. You're like, I, I'm not involved anywhere. I don't have any guys speaking to my life. I don't, there's no girls speaking to my life. If you're a woman, you're not involved in any type of community group. There's nobody in your life that you have allowed in to really speak to you. This is dangerous. Not even your wife, not even your husband. You haven't even allowed them to speak to you. This is dangerous. I'll tell you why. Because you don't even see those areas of broken growth in your life. You don't see them. Everybody else does. Absolutely guarantee it. If you're married, I absolutely guarantee your spouse knows them. I mean, all you got to do is just ask her. Some of you don't ask because you're afraid of what the answer might be. But that's part of humble repentance. If you're truly serious about being fruitful, truly serious about Jesus, then you will sit down with somebody and honestly you will say, please speak in my heart. Tell me, show me, are there areas in my life that are unfruitful, areas that are barren, areas that are abhorrent, areas that are just critical areas that don't look like Jesus? I want to know. You give them that opportunity to speak in your life. So the point of the matter is, is that first and foremost, When it comes to ministry to God, worship is an important element. And this has to do with humbly submitting ourselves to God and then being conformed or transformed, I should say, into his image. Paul's going to say that this is an act of living sacrifice whereby we present ourselves to God. It's good. It's a good thing. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus actually rebukes the religious leaders of this day. And he says this, this people, these religious people, they honor me with their lips, but with their heart, they're, they're far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's actually referencing Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. So what I see here is that Jesus is going to talk about various forms of serving God or acts of worship or religious or spiritual duties, I should say, or good works that are in the realm of worship. It has to do with singing. Sometimes we think of worship exclusively as singing. Worship guys love to hijack this word, and they say it's just about singing. And the reality is, is we love to sing here at Calvary Slow. But the reality, when we sing, not everybody worships. Some will. Others just simply mouth words. Some of them even speak the words, but they're not really worshiping. Because Jesus says it's possible to actually mouth words, to speak words, and have your heart completely far from God. So at the end of the day, what you begin to realize that God actually is more interested in where your heart's at in submission and worship and love and humble adoration of himself than you just simply speaking words. He wants your heart. And the good work of ministry and worship to God really also has to do with this concept of worshiping God. It involves singing, involves teaching God's word. That's what he says, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men, and also listening to God's word. That's part of worship. That's part of the good work of submitting ourselves, of worshiping God. Uh, when we, I'll give you an example, when we, we listen to God's word, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love this church. I love the fact that Calvary Slow, you guys love God's word. I love that. You guys come and you bring your Bibles every single week. It's amazing to me. I love to see you guys passionate about God's word. That's good. That's really good. You should do that. But at the end of the day, what it is all about is about letting God's word bring about revelation of Jesus so that we love God, so that we, out of love and devotion to him, give ourselves back to him. So that he's going to describe as a good work that has to do with worship. The second thing that we notice with regard to good works of ministry to God is obedience. Titus chapter 1 verse 16. It's kind of in the negative way, but listen to how he puts it. I'll kind of twist it in the positive. 
Uh, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Paul's writing, uh, or in this particular passage right here, he's talking about there are this group of people that they don't love God. Uh, the works that they do, they're not good works. And the reason why they're not good works is because they're in disobedience to God. So you flip that around or you invert that. The idea is, is that if you trust God, you love God, you serve God, and you're obedient to God, the result is good works. You do good works. Again, good works is not what gets God to like you or gets God's affection set upon you. Good works we do because we are loved by God. That's the way the Bible is going to identify this and live this out and point us in that direction. The third thing that I think it also has to do with works, uh, good works that have to do with ministry to God also involves, involves our vocation. Let me give an example. Colossians chapter 3 verse 22 says this. Uh, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, uh, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but by sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Elsewhere, Paul's going to talk about this. Peter talks about this. Talks a lot about vocation. And the reality is, is that the majority of people to whom the early uh, New Testament was being written to was a lot of uh, blue-collar workers. These were people that worked with their hands. And so Paul's going to basically say this. Use your hands as a means of bringing glory to God, as a means of serving God, as a means of good deeds, good works before God. And so the idea is that um, what Paul does, he actually takes work and he redeems it. It's amazing when you think about this. First century Romans kind of were fueled by a lot of the philosophical ideas of the Greeks. And the Greeks had a very low view of work. There's sort of this mentality that if you've got to work with your hands, it's not that great of a job. It's not a great of a thing. I mean, if you want really good work, become a philosopher. Be somebody who talks for a living. All right? But if you've got to use your hands, it's not really good work. Paul's actually going to completely change it around, turn it on its head. He's going to say, look, use your hands to bring glory to God. Absolutely amazing. Paul says, look, God actually finds great delight in his children working hard as unto him. Do you know that? What's your view on vocation? I mean, how do you think of it? Let me give you an example. I'm going to quote to you guys uh, something from a lady by the name of Dorothy Sayers who wrote around ninth, a little bit before uh, World War II. Um, but before I do, I just want you to think about this. Because oftentimes, it's been my contention in a lot of ways that the church, in fact, I would even say a lot of ways, fueled by pastors, perhaps well-meaning pastors, but I still think it's not a good idea nonetheless. That pastors have sort of done this job where they have the pulpit, they have the opportunity, the stage, where they begin to create this mentality that the most important, most significant position in God's entire family is us. People that open their mouth and speak. The most important role of anybody in the entire church are pastors who speak. And to be quite frank with you, that's completely unfounded biblically. That yes, it's an important role if that's what God's called you to. I mean, if that's what God has called you to do, that's very important, very significant. To me, that's what God's called me to do. I mean, if I were to go out and be like, you know, I'm going to be a lawyer. First, that'd be a sad day for the legal system. Secondly, the reality is, is that's not what God's called me to do. If God called me to go out and be an accountant, again, that'd be horrible. You don't want me doing your books. I'm not that good. Numbers give me a headache, a migraine headache. But at the end of the day, when we talk about vocation, for me, God has called me vocationally to serve him by way of preaching, teaching, feeding, training, loving, serving, shepherding, pastoring. That's what God's called me. It may not be what he's called you. For some of you, he's called you 
out in all sorts of different ways to maybe be a teacher, to somehow work in the wedding industry, to be somebody that builds buildings, to be an architect, to somehow work taking care of landscape, to be a mom. All of those are vocations that in God's eyes are of supreme importance and value. Do not belittle that. Doing that unto God is actually an act of worship. It's a good deed. It's an act of service to God. That is your worship. Don't think less of that. Let me tell you what Dorothy Sayers says is this. It's great. She says, let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside it. The apostles complained rightly when they said it was not uh, proper that they should leave the word of God and serve tables. Their vocation was to preach the word. But the person whose vocation is to prepare the meals beautifully might equally, uh, with equal justice, protest, it is not proper for us to leave the service of our tables in order to preach the word. I love that. Because it actually raises both to the place of worship before God. So for some of you, you should not be a preacher. I mean, you shouldn't be. Not because you're not necessarily equipped at it, but because God's given you abilities to do other things. Do that as unto the glory of God. That is your good work as unto God. You understand that? There's value in that. Do you know that before Jesus started his earthly ministry, I mean, there's not a lot spoken about this, and I definitely don't want to conjecture on this, but for 30 years, it's believed that Jesus worked with his father, somehow worked with his hands as a carpenter. There's all sorts of discussions as to what carpentry was and what Jesus did, whether it was you know, working with wood or working with metal and whatnot. Nobody really knows for sure. But let's just assume that he was a carpenter working with wood. If Jesus was a carpenter working with wood, you think he made good chairs? You think he made pieces of junk? You sat on them and it falls apart like an Ikea chair. Do you think that's what Jesus did? I mean, Ikea, I love it. All right, we buy it a lot because it looks really nice and it's cheap. But at the end of the day, you know what I'm talking about you got to learn a second language and go to an actual private school, not public, to learn how to even put something together. I'm talking about the point that I'm making is that Jesus, no doubt, everything he did was good and upright. Whatever Jesus calls us to, if you're a Christian and you've been redeemed, if you've been given an upgrade of software in your heart, God's given you a new heart, you're a new person, you're a new creation, your good work unto God will involve your vocation. What you do, how you do it, the attitude by which you do it, how you serve God with that, there is value to that. It's really important to understand that. Hope we see that. The next thing, we see good works of ministry to God. Uh, the second thing I want to take a look at, good works that have to do with ministry to believers. Um, the New Testament is actually filled with this, that God wants for there to be a particular moral standard by which we view other people is again one of the reasons why Paul is going to say this in Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 he says so then uh, as we have opportunity in other words let's create those opportunities literally is what the Greek text says let's create those opportunities let's look for those opportunities to do good unto all men but then he adds this little uh, phrase at the end but especially to those of the household of God so I'll get to the all people in just a moment but first I want to take a look at especially those in the household of God there's this mentality that Paul is trying to instill within us that if you're a Christian and you are saved by grace alone and you know and you're confident what God has done in your life by saving you, then you will do good to all people. There will be a responsibility that you feel to Christians in particular. Let me ask you, do you? Do you feel that responsibility to other believers? 
Who are the other believers in your life, if I can just pry a little bit, who are the other believers in your life right now, currently, that you are particularly pouring yourself into? I mean, it could be your kids. It could be your wife. It could be your husband. It could be other people in your life that are other new believers. Do you know that we as a church, we have so many young believers in our church Obviously, it's summertime, a lot of people are gone. There are so many young believers in our church. We desperately need, especially men that get the vision of God, that are moved by Jesus, that want to be on mission to help train young men. We have a lot of young women that need to be trained and loved and served and cared for. In the fall, we're hoping to really revamp the way that we, we even do our community groups. We need people that would be willing to, A, not only lead community groups, but also people that would be willing to help coach community group leaders. Do you feel a responsibility to God's people? Do you love them? And I don't mean just simply show up for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning for a short period of time, say hi to five people, and then leave and forget their names and come back again the following week and do the same process over again. I'm talking, are there people in your life that you expressly feel a desire to oversee their soul, to shepherd them, to pour into their life, to lead them, to guide them? And I'm not in any way trying to create any type of guilt or manipulation. I'm just wanting you to think about this. Because this is how the Bible wants us to think in terms of each other. That we are a family. Do you feel the fact that we are a family? Do you sense that? Do you know that? Do you believe that? That's how the Bible wants us to live. Listen how Paul's going to put this in several verses. First Timothy chapter 6, he's going to say this going to talk specifically to the rich people that are in the church. Obviously, there were rich people in the church back in the day. Here's what Paul's going to say. As for the rich in this present age, I charge them not to be arrogant or haughty, uh, nor to set their hopes in the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us everything to enjoy, that they are to be, uh, they are to be good, uh, to be rich in good works. There's that phrase, in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So Paul's going to say to the first century people that were rich in a community of saints, he's going to say, look, if you're rich, don't trust in your riches, because you know what, just like the stock market, it could go down. The reality is. But Paul's going to say, look, if you got riches, use those riches as an opportunity to give back to the body of Christ, to be generous with other people, to help other people, to be joyful in other peop- with other people, and giving away to helping out other people, doing good works is the word that Paul's going to use. Titus chapter 2 verse 7 is going to say this, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. There's the phrase again, good works. So the whole point of the matter is show yourself, Titus, to have this model of good works in your life so that when people see you, they can look at your life and realize there's something good about you. And the goodness is not something that Titus develops himself, but it's a it's the fact that Titus is tapped into Jesus. It's one of the reasons why Jesus uses this motif of a vine in the branches. He says, if you're abiding in me, and you'll bear fruit. But where does the fruit come from? Where does the ability to bear the fruit come from? From you as a vine? No. But because you're attached to the rest of the plant. In other words, it all comes from God. So the good works that we're actually talking about are not good works that you somehow have drummed up and you yourself are trusting in to somehow appease God. The good works we're talking about are ultimately the ones that come from God because you're trusting in God, you're abiding in God, you're loving God, and they bring glory back to God. And they bring blessing and encouragement to other people, in this case, the church. Titus chapter 3 verse 14 says this, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so that to help 
causes of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So he's going to say this. Look, you yourself, make sure that you live out a pattern of good works, but also urge the rest of the body, the church, the rest of the people to live out good works towards each other. So if there's needs in the church, there are people that are hurting, people aren't able to pay their bills, if there's a brand new mom who's having a real difficult time, she's not able to hang with her husband, there's no time there, you know, it's amazing that you can actually ask that mom, look, I know you're a new, you've got a mom, you're, uh, you're a mom, you've got a newborn kid, I wonder, have you ever hung out with your husband, had a date with him over the past three months? No? How about this? Let me watch your kid for you once a week so that you can go out and have some date time with your husband. You need that. I mean, can you imagine if we were a church that actually lived like that rather than relied upon somebody to be like, we've got to make a program for this, we've got to get this to happen. But what if we were a church that were so well aware of the various needs of different people in our lives that we just preempt those things? I mean, honestly, just got past all of the facade and we're like, look, let's cut the crap. What's going on in your life? You having a hard time? You're struggling? Look, how can I do anything to help you? You've been sick for the past few months. Look, can I come over and mow your lawn for you? Can I help you? You need financial help? You need food? I'm here to help. Can you imagine if that was the church that you're part of? I mean, some of you are offended because I said crap. You're like, I can't believe you said that. Look, the point of the matter, it's amazing to me. It's like, look, at the end of the day, like, do we truly love each other? I mean, do we really truly feel a burden of love, of wanting to help one another? That's what Paul's saying. Those are the good works that we live out. Those are the attitudes that Paul says, if you're in Jesus, if you've been transformed by the gospel, if it's changed you, then we will naturally have a heart and an attitude that says, I want to love other people and serve other people. That will be the result. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Love this. How to stir up. Some of your translations might say provoke. It's the idea of like, you know, some of us are really good at provoking an argument. You know, like, I didn't like what you said here and I just want to argue with you over this. But Paul's like, look, why waste your time on that? You know what would be great? We provoked each other to good works. Well, we are doing it in such a way so that one person's good works is going to be outdone by another, not in a competitive sense where it's self-centered, but in a way that's bringing glory to God. Like, oh my gosh, I heard that so-and-so had a need. I want to go help them out. Like, oh man, I there might be four other people just like that that might kind of fit that bill. I'm going to find those people. I'm going to be intentional tracking those people down and helping those people out and searching for those types of people. And I'll just be straight up front and just say this. We have a lot of babies in this church. That means that we have a lot of parents in this church that have those young babies, I'll tell you what, straight up front, a lot of those parents don't have date times. You can start very practically right there. If you're young, if you're a married adult, and you don't have kids at home, you can actually start on a very practical level right there by finding those people, asking them, can I watch your kid once a week and do something? I already mentioned that, but the point I would make is that these are very practical ways of just simply saying, we are going to be a body of people that is rich in good works towards one another. Amen? All right. Last one is this, good works of ministry to the world. This has to do with evangelism and mercy. I'll start with evangelism. Matthew chapter 28 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus is actually going to say this is what we typically call the Great Commission, to go out and be active in proclaiming the good news. Now, let me say this that a lot of times evangelism gets twisted into this really heavy-duty, burden type of a work where it's just like, 
you know, sometimes it can almost be this, this mentality of like, you know, we're calling you, we're begging you, we're manipulating you, we're making you feel bad if you're not doing this, preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus, leading people to Jesus. And the bottom line is this, if that's what ends up happening, what ends up taking place is this net result that causes people to think that evangelism is a work that must be done in order for God to like me. There we are, back again under the law. Rather than seeing evangelism as just this natural understanding of this good news that we get to share. I say this all the time, but all of us are evangelists. All of us. We have different causes, different things. Uh, A a newborn mom is an evangelist. She's posting pictures on Facebook of her baby. That's evangelism, all right? She's got good news in the form of a baby. She's got pictures to prove it. She posts them. That's preaching. She's evangelizing the world, saying, the baby's come. And I want everybody just to know that. Some of you are evangelists when it comes to recycling. All right? You get the idea. We are all evangelists. And what it means is we find a cause, a passion, something, a person, a relationship that we love. And we go out just naturally and tell people about it. And that's the same way with the gospel. And so what I'm going to tell you is that if you're looking at your heart, you're like, I never tell people about Jesus. I don't want to. I'm not going to tell you, stop being an idiot and do better. Because that's what religion loves to do. But what I am going to say is, you need to look back at Jesus. You need to be reminded of what he did for you. Somehow the goodness of the news is worn off. And you got to go back to that news. you got to remind yourself of how good God is and what he's done for you. Let it affect your heart. Let your affections rise back to God. You know what will naturally end up happening? Is then you will naturally become an evangelist. You will get the opportunity to share the gospel. Not that you have to share the gospel. You get to share the gospel. That God has done something so good in your life that you become naturally this conduit by which you communicate it. The final one is this. Is that good works that oftentimes come out by way of mercy. I love this verse. Luke chapter 6 verse 35 says this. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High God, for he, God, is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. Here's the point that I think Jesus is trying to convey. Lend out to anybody. Help other people. If you see somebody in need, serve them. Help them. Take good care of them. See, oftentimes in our minds, we're, we're like, we have this mentality of like, well, they have nothing to give to me. Or they'll never say thank you. Or they won't be grateful. Or they will treat me like a jerk. Or they have treated me like a jerk. And they've been rude to me. They've said nasty things about me. Or they sent me a nasty email one day years ago. And I've never been able to get past that or forgive them because of that. And what Jesus is saying is that, look, be grateful. Or uh, be generous to even those that are ungrateful. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know what he's saying? Is that you, that was you. You weren't grateful. I gave you sunshine. I gave you rain. I gave you cells that actually work. I gave you a mind that thinks. I give you eyes to see beauty. I gave you taste buds to taste good food, drink good wine. I give you everything in this life to enjoy everything. And you were not grateful to me. God says, but I was very, very good to you. And Jesus goes on to say that, look, those of you that have this software upgrade, got a new heart, do good to all people, even those that are jerks. Do good to all people, even those that will take advantage of you and abuse you and misuse you and misappropriate even the good things that you've given to them. 
to good to all these people because you want to be like God, your father? That's what God's like. So we do good to all people indiscriminately. Why? Because that's how God's been good to us. That's it. These are good works. These are the type of works that God wants us to live out. And the final thing I'd finish up with is this. Is that all of these things need to be kept in a balance. All of them. Because what oftentimes ends up happening in the church is we get churches that focus on one or two of them and they exclude the rest. I'll give you an example. There's churches that are all about, you know, our number one chief goal. Because the question oftentimes arises, well, which one's the most important, right? That's the way we oftentimes think. We're like, how can we streamline this? How can we kind of run this through the mill, the processor, to get the most for our money, to get the biggest bang for our buck? Because if we just got an hour and like 12 minutes, I mean, for us, we go a little bit longer. But, um, you know, let's, how, much, how much can we actually get out of our time together here So what's the most important? So we typically say things like this. Well, you know, depending upon your background, well, the most important thing is just teaching the Word of God. It's teaching the Word of God. It's singing some songs. That's important. Um, don't worry about mercy, showing kindness to the poor, the people that are hurting, that are marginalized, struggling, going through difficult times. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about evangelism. Uh, just focus on teaching and preaching. And then there's others that are like, look, uh, the most important thing is that we've got to be evangelizing, preaching the gospel, going out to those that are hurting, showing my, uh, mercy and kindness and justice, fighting for righteousness' sake, out in the street, selling all of our goods and doing good, kind works amongst the people that have nothing to give back. And oftentimes in those circles, you might not find a lot of evangelism or preaching the gospel or importance of training and teaching, raising people up in the ways of God. So there's oftentimes these imbalances. And what ends up happening in oftentimes these various types of churches, you have a lot of infighting. So you have the church that's all about teaching. They're always looking at the church that's, you know, worried about evangelism. They're like judging them, putting them down, talking smack about them. Then you got the church that's all about justice. And they're like, you know, the church that's, you know, the fundamentalist church, it's all about teaching. They never get out in the street and never help people and never serve. They're never going to soup kitchens or never taking donations for food. And, you know, we're doing it right. They're not. And there's this mentality this is exactly what Paul is trying to say, be careful of. Because if indeed you are accepted by God on the basis of grace alone, then that's how we've got to accept other people. But if you think in your mind you're accepted on the basis of grace alone plus works of justice, acts of mercy, then you will look down with contempt upon people that feel burdened to teach and instruct and preach. But if you think that we're saved by grace alone, plus good, solid, expositional Bible preaching, teaching of the Bible, then you will look down upon people that are out there doing the work of the ministry in the gutters, in the streets. And you'll look down upon them with contempt. Because you somehow have slipped into thinking that you are saved by grace plus good works. But if you know that you're saved by grace alone, then we receive everybody on the, grace, on the basis of grace alone. And our works then begin to emulate and reflect God's. All of God's works are good. All of God's works are good. Jonathan Edwards, as I finish with this, I'm going to have Evan come on up and we'll wrap it up. Jonathan Edwards, um, the great preacher, around 1755, wrote this little treatise called The Nature of True Virtue. And in it he was basically saying this, unless that we know that we're saved on the basis of Jesus' good work alone, then what will end up happening is that we will end up trying as hard as we can to appease God. You can say this very loosely, but at the end of the day, it was a good work that actually saved us. 
It wasn't our good work. It was the good work of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus did everything always to please the Father. Everything he did, everything he said, always brought extreme praise, honor back to the Father. And what happens is that God sees Jesus' sacrifice of love and honor to God and he imputes that, the righteousness that's characterized, that comes from Jesus' sacrifice. He gives it to us, imputes it to us, whereby he takes all of our filthy rags, all of our best deeds, all of our best hopes and intentions, and he piles them up as nasty and as filthy and as corrosive and as horrifying as they are. He piles those up upon Jesus. He dies in the place of all of those and in exchange gives to us the benefit of all of his good works. But I'll tell you what, if you're not convinced that that's what happened, if you're not convinced that you are actually made right with God on the basis of his work alone, you will work. You will work desperately hard to get God to like you. You will work desperately hard to appease God. And you will either end up becoming very self-righteous like the scribes and the Pharisees were, or you will end up becoming totally full of despair because you'll know that you can't do it. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, what you need to know is you need to see Jesus. Jesus who did all of this on behalf of you. It's not your works that save you. It's Jesus' work of redemption that saves you. And out of love for God, we serve him. If you're a Christian here and somehow you get these categories confused in your mind and you begin to think that somehow God accepts you and loves you on the basis of Jesus plus whatever it is that you do on behalf of him as opposed to seeing yourself as completely made whole by God, what you need to do is you need to remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. At the end of the day, the answer is the same. We need to look to Jesus to see what Jesus did for us, either on behalf of us to save our souls, or if you're a Christian, what Jesus did on behalf of us, presenting before God this good work. Because really, at the end of the day, it boils down to this. If I move out in this world, really, and I try to love and serve people, apart from loving and serving God, then I will use people as a means to bring somehow some sense of appeasement to my own soul. I'm not really doing things out of a genuine love for other people or a genuine love for God. It's really self-motivated. And that, by virtue, is not a good work. It's an evil work. But if we recognize at the end of the day what Jesus did for us on behalf of us, his work was a work motivated for the glory of God and for our good. That alone is a work that was presented by God and accepted by God, presented to God and accepted by God on our behalf. And therefore, our hearts are melted and changed. So therefore, what happens now if you're a Christian and you're moved by that, God's opened your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. What ends up happening now is a response that comes out of your life back to God and back to other people on a horizontal level that's reflective of Jesus. And therefore, by virtue of that, it's good. It's a good work. Do you get that? It's a good work. So don't trust in good works that you bring. Trust in the good work that Jesus accomplished. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. What Jesus did for you, not what you do and bring to God. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond. We're going to partake of communion. Communion 
really is the embodiment. It speaks to us. It points us to Jesus and the good work that he did for us on the cross. We're going to sing. We'll worship God. We'll confess sin to God, which involves our humility. It's a good work. You can't confess sin of a wicked heart. You can't. Confession of sin comes from a heart that's humble. Which is, again, evidence of the fact that you've had that software upgrade. That God's changed you. It's a good work of repentance. Good work of worship whereby we sing to God. Good work whereby we serve one another, love one another. So I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We'll confess sin. We'll partake of communion. We'll remember the good things that God has done for us. Jesus, we just thank you for the cross. We love you. We serve you. We confess sin to you even right now. God, we ask you that you would help wash us and cleanse us from our trust and our confidence that so oftentimes we place in our good works when in reality, God, they're nothing more than filthy rags that need not to be trusted in but actually need to be confessed and repented of. God, the evidence that so oftentimes that we are trusting in our good works is that we show contempt to so many people rather than overflowing with love and gratitude peace and generosity to other people. So God, I pray that as we're here before you right now that just move in our place, move in this, our presence here, God. Revealing Jesus to us. Melting our hearts. We worship